0: Welcome to the BMGA Leadership Speaker Series podcast. Jose Agbun Salah Abudum, the founder and executive director of BMGA Foundation, an NGO focused on driving inclusivity and gender equity in the business environment. On this podcast, great leaders share their career path and leadership journey of triumphs and challenges with participants of the BMGA Fellows Program, a social impact initiative designed to narrow the gender skills gap amongst young women. The intention of the podcast is to foster and nurture the leadership potential of the next generation of leaders. From leaders in the creative industry to entrepreneurs who are shaping and redefining their respective industries, there's a learning point for everyone. Today's episode features Olubankole Wellington, popularly known by his stage name, Banky W. He is a singer, songwriter, actor, motivational speaker, entrepreneur, and politician. He is also the founder of Empire Made Entertainment, a talent management company that has produced internationally acclaimed artists like WizKid and Scales. He's also the founder of the I Am Capable Scholarship Fund, a platform that provides tuition and other resources to deserving youths in various tertiary institutions across Africa. He's an accomplished motivational speaker who has delivered inspiring and powerful speeches at events like the London Business School's African Summit, TEDx Lagos, and Wimbiz. He's also featured in several popular movies such as Jacob's Cross by MNET TV, Sugar by MTV, and The Wedding Party, which broke box office records.
1: Frankie, honestly, this is a question I've always wanted to ask you, seriously. And um, I don't think we've ever had a chance to have this conversation. So when I, take a, I mean, let's take a quick trip down memory lane, I, I think of when I first met you through a sister. I think this was like in 2003. You were an up-and-coming artist where you were working towards getting a break in the R&B scene in the U.S. So, I mean, for me, it's like when you reflect, what stands out for you in that pivotal period, period that has set the stage for the career you have today?
2: Um, what stands out for me? I would say two things. Um, one you know, we had started kind of making music, right? And recording, and we felt like the music was was good enough to be signed um, and good enough to sell. And at the time, you know, we, we just, all we had were just the dreams of making it in the music business and really not much else, no kind of connections or whatever. So there was this one day that myself and Tunde, who you know very well, and I think another friend, Tino, you know, we decided that we would start camping out outside of record label addresses in New York city. And we, you know, we had our, our demos, you know, printed up and we drive uh, down to Manhattan and we would looked up, you know, addresses of record labels and we just parked somewhere and just waited until we saw somebody that looked like somebody uh, to be like, Hey, you know, <laughs> and believe it or not, we, we saw LA Reed, right. This was after a few days of trying this strategy because we didn't know where to go, we didn't know what to do. We, you know, we didn't have any connection, so we're just like you know, let's just go see, you know. And we saw LA Reid, who anybody who knows a little bit about the music business knows, you know, this is LA Reid that signed Usher and Mariah Carey and all of these people. And we said, ah, you know, this is it. We have, we have found it. This is the person. So right <laughs> <laughs> up on, on LA Reed outside of, whether it was Universal or Def Jam or whatever it was, and we're like, oh, uh, you know, good morning sir. you know, we're young artists, you know, this is my music. And he looked us in the face and he said, hey guys, I'm sure you're very talented, but I can't take your demo, I'm sorry. And we were like, what do you mean you can't take our demo? And he was just like, sorry, you know, unsolicited demos. I can't take it. Like legally, it's not something that I can do. And, you know, I wish you all the best, but you got to find another way. And he walked away and walked inside and I was completely crushed. I was so sad because it was like, I was looking at my, the key to my destiny, you know, just walking away. <laughs> so we now realized that even upon trying to find one or two A&Rs and running up on them, that that strategy was not going to work because they, they wouldn't even take it. If you, if you didn't come through a source of somebody they already knew, they wouldn't even take your demo from you. So it was like, okay, you know, what do we then do? And that's when this thought process of you want a seat at the table, but you have to bring your own chair. That mindset was instilled in, in my mind. And I said, you know what? You know, at the time, Jay-Z was my favorite artist. And I remember reading his interviews and it was like, You know, we wanted to blow, nobody would listen to us, so we started our own company. So I called Tunde up over the phone, I was in third year of university or something at the time, I said, listen, we're going to start our own record label. And that's when we came up with the idea for EME, we're just two kids in university that just had this wild dream, and really EME was not worth the paper that we registered the company on at the time. But you know, I think the important thing when you want to do anything in life is just to start you know you just start taking some steps so we registered the company we said okay what next we said well we have all this music that we've recorded and it's good enough to sell so let's just start selling it so we, we went to my school uh, one of the buildings in my school my lab i was in an engineering school at the time we printed up posters and we started driving to every hair and nail salon in the area, because I made R&B music, so we figured, you know, you know, it appeals more to women. So any business that had women that would come and you know sit down as clientele, we would run up on the on the store and then beg the owner to allow me sing for the customers. And sometimes they would kick us out.
1: Wow. Sometimes
2: they would be like, oh, you know what? Let's take pity on these young boys. And they would. We, so me, Sunday, and Tina would come and we say, hey, you know, hi everyone. We're young entrepreneurs and you know, we just like a minute or two to sing for you, and then I would sing a little bit of one of my songs, and then we would sell CDs out of the trunk of our car. And at one point, we all quit our our little hustles, our part-time jobs, and all we were doing for money was going to hair salons, nail salons, barbershops, wherever we could find a willing audience, and we would sing, and we would sell CDs from the trunk of our car. And I like to tell that story, because we did this for a while. And I like to tell that story because the seeds... What EME eventually became, those seeds were planted from these moments. When we didn't know anybody, we didn't have any connections, We didn't have any money. It was just hey, we have a good product. Let's just even, let's even recruit our neighborhood to be fans or our city or our town. So we started doing like that and then the press covered us because we were just these crazy boys that we would always sing in these random shops and establishments. We got a bit of press. The music started growing. The internet helped at the time. We started growing on MySpace, High Five, if anybody even remembers those platforms. But EME, that has now made so much money and so much acclaim, if we didn't stick through it at that time and commit to it at that point, you know, in just working with what what was within our reach and just, just trying to take some steps at that time, we definitely wouldn't make it to this point now. So, so what sticks out most in mean, my mind about the journey was that just daily grind of trying to beg to sing in hair and nail salons and the seeds that we planted at that time that eventually became the company that we have now. So we thank
1: you Oh, that's an incredible story. I, I had no idea. And I mean, just hearing you say that, it just reminds me when you, we always say that no experience is lost. Because everything you learned during that period, going through that process, has probably played a significant role in where you guys are today. That's incredible. So how do you go from that to Banky W today? Right? How do you go from this up-and-coming artist to becoming this well-accomplished musician, actor, um, politician, and someone who's great? I mean, literally like EME, people don't realize this, but we's kid came out of EME. So how do you go from that? To where you are today. What is that journey? Sort of walk us through the trajectory of that journey, and what was the driving force for you? Okay, so um,
2: I would say the first thing about these kinds of journeys is that you kind of have to have a vision of where you want to get to, um, and while you have that big vision, you also now need to take intentional steps from wherever you are towards eventually, hopefully, getting there someday. So. Um, when we wanted to form the company, you know, uh, Tunde and I had a conversation and we said, you know, what do we call it, right? So we said, oh, we want to build an empire because the people that we were studying, we never had direct access to them, but the Jay-Zs and the Diddy's and Dr. Dre's were all people who had built these empires. It was either Rockefeller or Bad Boy or Aftermath. And they had music interests, but that just opened the door for them to do so many other things. And so we said, okay, we want to build an empire, so we're going to call it Empire something. And then we said, okay, we're, you know, we're mates, we're brothers, so we called it Empire Mates Entertainment. And the grand vision was to have this company that would be, you know, a launching pad for my music. And then if we, if we became successful enough, other people's music, and then if we became successful enough in that, we would branch out into other things, right? So That was the grand vision that we had, relatively, at least for an independent artist. We became extremely popular on MySpace that people started ordering CDs from from us in, like, Japan and China.
1: Wow, that's amazing.
2: We would would box, like, a few hundred CDs and ship them to, you know, that part of the world. Because for some weird reason, I guess maybe the kind of people that would listen to, like, K-pop and, you know, just Asian pop and R&B found something that they liked about the music we were making at the time. So we would ship it out there, these boxed 500 CDs at the time, 700 CDs, and they would send, they would send us a check. It didn't have anything to do with being Nigerian. So it was like, I was making R&B kind of love songs, but then my Nigerian was a different thing. But then when I met LD, I understood for the first time how to make these worlds work together and how to infuse Pigeon or a bit of Yoruba or whatever into the music that I was making. And that just helped me become more of who I was. It helped me become myself, right? Um, because I am a Nigerian that happens to have a Yankee side or an r side or whatever. And I think that just helped me see what I was doing a bit differently. And, you know, one thing led to another, then eventually my, my music started getting played on Nigerian radio and I was still in Yankee at the time. And it just came to a head at one point we were just like, you know, you know, I had a conversation. My sister was getting married in 2007, so I came back, you know, to kind of help her uh, set up for the wedding. I took a leave of absence. By this time, I had graduated uh, school, and I was working for an engineering company. And uh, so I took, like, six weeks off of work, like a leave of absence, just to come and see what the music scene was like. Because I had then, I had met from LD, I had met, uh, you know, 2 I had met... Um, some people from storm just a few artists who were on the scene in nigeria and i kept feeling like nigeria was where i was meant to be like i need to go back but it was it was hard for me because my my entire family doesn't live in nigeria but when my sister was getting married we were coming back to lagos for the wedding so i came took some time off of work just to see what the scene was like i think i did ovation red carol one or two christmas events you know just to kind of see and. and then I had a conversation with Shego, who is days older, older brother, who had moved back to Nigeria some years before. And he said, listen, if you want to come and really pursue this thing that you keep talking about, you can stay with me. We'll make a room for you. He converted his attic into a bedroom. Uh, I used to call it the penthouse. It really wasn't the penthouse. It was like an attic. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. he to me to, you know, kind of create a, a living space. So I knew I had somewhere to rest my head he said if you come back, we can try and set up EME here and you know give you a soft landing so that you can give it a shot. And if you do that then then you know we move. But if if you're not that like, you can't be one leg in, one leg out. Um so I, I spoke to my folks at the time and my mom could not understand it for the life of her. She was like, You want to sing, sing in New York City. There are people singing in <laughs> you have graduated, you haven't a- because you know, with parents, you know, it's from a place of care. You know, absolutely. But but I told my my folks, I told my dad, I was like, you know, if I don't follow what my heart is telling me is my calling, where I'm meant to be, if I don't do this thing now, then I'll never do it, and it'll always be something that I'll regret. I'll wake up one day, I'll be old, and I'll be thinking, ah. But when I was young, I really this is where I felt like I should go. So I said, just ignore me for a year and a half. I said, if it doesn't work. In 18 months, me, I don't like being poor. So I'll come back and get another job or get my master's or something, but I need to get it out of my system because I can live with trying and failing, but not trying is just not an option for me. So at that point, they gave me their blessing. Uh, I moved back uh, 2008. And, you know, then we started the grind there. Um, of course, in the entertainment business, fame comes before fortune. So, and that 2008 year was just a difficult year for me because we spend money on videos, photo shoot, video shoot, DJ, promo, this, radio, Kinecon, and um, there was no money coming in. Um, and I remember the end of 2008 going into 2009, I had spent everything that I had to the point where I was now borrowing 5K from Shadow every Monday to put gas in a car that he had given me to use and just to buy recharge cards and get around. And you know when you go to church for the 31st night and you write your prayer points inside your Bible, that's my three requests for the year. Number one, this must work, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that's where I was. I got accosted by arm robbers.
1: Oh my goodness, wow.
2: At that point you start thinking that everybody that advised you not to come and try this thing that you wanted to try is when you hit rock bottom, because mm-hmm. then the only place there is for you to go is up. Go. I was so broke, I was so sad, I was so depressed. But it was like you either throw the talent now mm-hmm. or you know, you keep the same goal but you change the strategy. So, you know, let's start recording again, but maybe work with different producers and just try again, but try a different way and you know, at that point, that's when I worked with Kobams. We did Strong Team. I worked with Dr. Fraud. We did Lagos Party. And all of a sudden, from trying to beg to get opportunities to perform, people were like, oh, where is that boy that sings this song? Tell him to come play here. And for the first time, a lot of people were actually paying me to do the thing that I loved. Um, and then, you know, so as my music became more successful, um, we went back to the vision, right? The vision was we wanted to build an empire. So you know, Jay-Z signed Kanye West, Dr. Dre signed Eminem. So the next thought in our minds was, okay, now that people have accepted what we came to do, who can we find? How can we be a stepping stone to other young, talented artists and producers? And that's when we started working with Wiz and Scales and Mastercraft, the producer, and Suka Sounds, the engineer. And God just really blessed us to be a stepping stone to just a whole group of musicians who launched off from us and started doing amazing things and from there it was like okay what else can we do you know can we get into the movie space and i acted in some films and we co-executive produced some films and they've done well and now i mean we always wanted to do this right we always wanted to get in the door and then you know shift the goalposts you know once this starts working and you got that then you know i think it's the jobs that said stay hungry stay foolish just keep Learning, keep trying, keep trying to accomplish more, you know, and 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 that's been the the process since then.
1: Wow, that's amazing. I mean one thing I love about what you what you're saying and um it's something I hear in a lot of successful people's story, and I say those stories are so important because when people see the finished product, they don't realize the work it took to become that they don't realize that you started from a place where you didn't have any connection. You didn't know anybody. You had to do the grunt work to sort of get to where you are, prove yourself, and almost even working for free, like you were saying, where people just started paying you um, to, um, to to do what you love. And I, I really honestly like love hearing stories like that because I know that if I think of my story or even just looking at the young women who are in the program, everyone is, I mean, they might be in the starting point of their career where they are wondering, when am I going to get that break? And it's always so important for them to see that. For everybody you, you see that is successful, everybody you admire, they started from somewhere as well. They were wanting your position as well. And they had to, when the going got tough, they had to hang in there in order to see the light um, at the end of the tunnel. There's something you have touched on a couple of times and I and I want to bring it up because it's, um, it's something I know about you. You don't shy away from it. You talk about it publicly and even while you were telling your story, I mean, one thing I picked up is um, you're giving God the glory for everything that has happened, saying God bless us with this. I'm very curious um, to know, when was that moment for you in your life, right? Was there a defining moment where all of a sudden your faith became a focal point? I mean, some of us will say, okay, maybe you grew up as a Christian, but when was that moment where you're like, I see God, I get it. Like, this is going to become the cornerstone of my life. So I would say that... um
2: Honestly, I've, from a a very young age, I've kind of, I've been blessed to have God instilled as a backbone for me. The life experiences that I've been through proved to me, and I'm not trying to preach or, you know, enforce my beliefs on anybody, but I'm just saying what I learned at a very young age that God was indeed my backbone, and I was... I mean, I've had skin cancer three times. I've had near death experiences more often than I would like to, you know, to count from when I was a kid all the way growing up, whether it's from arm rubbers and staring down the barrel of the gun. I've always had this very acute sense of the existence of God um, and the fact that my life is in His hands and that I'm only here because of His grace and His mercy. Um, And that's what has kind of kept me going all throughout life. Now, yes, there was, there were obviously, you know, like any, you know, I tell people sometimes, if you read the story of the prodigal son in the Bible, that's your boy. You know, they could have written the story of Banky W in (laughs) in the scripture. I started speaking about it more um, in terms of like teaching in church and all of that in 2019. So leading up to late 2019. So leading up to that, that's when I ran for office. You know, I ran a campaign for the House of Representatives. Um, my wife and I had been trying to get pregnant, which we've shared that story. So I won't go into, you know, that's a long story on its own, but, you know, we tried IVF a few times. We got pregnant with twins. We'd lost them. And, you know, I think when you, when you go through those Kind of like really emotionally wrenching um, periods in your life in terms of losing um, uh, someone or a child uh, in terms of going through the kind of grueling, draining process that a political campaign can be. And, you know, those things can, for a lot of people can do one of two things. They can push you away from God or they can bring you in closer. Just, it was my faith in God that got me through the storms. It was my faith in God that got me through the tough times. It was, it was what, that's what held me and my wife together through all of this. And that's, you know, that's how I was able to find the strength to, to keep pushing and to keep dreaming and to keep working and to keep trying. And it just made his existence more real to me than it had ever been. So I think around that mid to late 2019, even though he had always been part of my story and I'd always acknowledged him, it just became, it became so important that I not only believed it, but that I also shared with it. You know, one thing that I I realized about scripture, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were not pastors. They were businessmen. Elisha was plowing oxen. These were people who were living life in business, in family, and all of that. But they just made the decision to make God their backbone and to share their experiences or write them down and let other people know that, hey, this is what God is doing with me. And people were able to draw from that. So that hit me like, you know what? I don't need to be the pastor of a church to talk about what God has done for me and what, he's, what he continues to do for me and the things that he's teaching me. And that's when I started just embracing um, the call or the opportunity to share. You know, the more you reach, the more you teach, you know
1: and, and, um, and that's, that's been it for me Thank you for sharing that and I find that you end up reaching more people and more effective because you're relatable people want to see, I mean you mentioned all the different characters I mean, you've pointed out in the Bible where it's they're human they're living their life and it's while they're living their life that they're serving God I love, um, there's a, um, there's a, they call him a marketplace preacher, um, Ozzy Hillman he always says, that, I don't know if you know Ozzy Hillman where he always says that um, I'm a Christian mark, uh, masquerading as a dentist I'm a right. Christian masquerading as whatever because in reality you are being called to be whatever it is you are in the world and let the world see um, see God in you um, while you're doing that.
2: As a Christian, you're called to be the light in darkness. Sometimes as Christians, or as children of God, we just want to point the light on each other inside Correct. the four walls of it. That's why I think it's important for me to still be in the entertainment business. I'm called to represent the light of God in those fields and There are people who will listen to me. There are young people who will listen to me now who, if Benin is having a revival, they're not coming. You know, they won't even know. But if, whether it's because of the music or the films or food or whatever it is that God has blessed me with, all of that means maybe you'll come to me because you, you like a love song that I sang to my wife. But when you come, you will hear about the truth of who God is to me. And I think that that's partly why God has given me the platforms he's given me, is to be able to be that light in these fields that he's placed me in and to attract people back. You know, in, the, in, in this dark world, you need that. You need God as your backbone. You need him as your foundation. That's where you build your house upon. Because whether you're a child of God or not, the storms are going to come. You know, life is going to throw its blows at you. And honestly, I can say it is is from building my house on the rock, Of God and His Word that has allowed me navigate and still remain standing, you know, this many years down the line. And so, can you bring God into your life and into your equation and make Him that intentional part of your life and building that relationship with Him? Because if you do, then everything else
1: eventually works together for your good and it works out in your favor. And if you live your life a certain way and people see that light in you, they see the way you live your life, they want to emulate that. I mean, it's just the reality where um, I, I've heard people say that sometimes the only Bible somebody will ever get to read is you. So it's, it's you. So it's, are you loving your neighbors? How are you treating people? You know, how are you conducting yourself? That that becomes more effective where, and I, and it like you've mentioned, which I really love the fact that you said that it's being relatable because you're still living a rich and fulfilled life whilst you're saying that yeah. I want to be a vessel used by God to, to, to be a light to the world. So I completely, I respect that. But I want to touch on something politics I mean, so you've done entertainment, I can make sense, of, I, can, I can understand that. Acting, I can understand that. Um, even when you talk about your faith, that now you're preaching from the pulpit, I can understand that. So where did politics come in all of this? I mean, you started a political party and you decided to actually pursue a legislative office. What was behind that? What was the driving force of that?
2: I've, I've been very vocal and very active in terms of like just advocacy far back as 2009, 2010, um, I think I've probably participated in more, as far as I know, the people that I know, have participated in more marches and protests and just initiatives of that sort geared towards making Nigeria a better place than most people that I know. So light up Nigeria, enough is enough. RSVP, occupy Nigeria, bring back our girls. Um, just you name it, advocacy, we've been... You know, really fully involved this entire time. And then uh, obviously a healthy amount of community service as well. And, you know, I would sit and I would look around, you know, election season after election season, and you would see people who should either be in jail or in exile, have no business looking over the affairs of the country. And these are the people that their faces are plastered on the walls during election season, half of the time. And it's just this thing where, you know, we, we can sit around as, as, as a generation and point fingers and complain, but at least those people decided to get involved in the equation. And as much as I can shout and scream at my television, I can never help Arsenal win one game as much as I love them. And so in that same thought process, if all of us continue to sit out of the political process and we continue to just point fingers at everything that is wrong, and some of us don't start to stick our necks out and and try and put in a different kind of leader, then we will always be in this place. And I'm really glad that I did it. Um, And by God's grace, I think we will go again. We're still trying to figure out exactly how. Interesting.
1: Okay. Wow. Um, So what would you say was the biggest learning for you going through that whole experience? Because that must have been completely different from everything else you're used to, where if it's music, if it's um, EME, everything has some sort of structure, and I know politics has its own structure as well. But that was you had to learn that. What was that experience like? I mean, all in all, and the fact that you're even saying now that that you're still definitely going to pursue that. What was the biggest learning for you, and what would you do differently next time than what you did the last time?
2: Mm, that's it. see, we, we need a whole other Zoom uh, meeting. <laughs> <laughs> Over the experience of of campaigning and the lessons learned, if I can pick one, I'll I'll just pick one thing to highlight. I think one of our biggest challenges when it comes to politics in Nigeria is the challenge of apathy. Um, And so people get fooled into thinking, you know, it's this party versus this party or whatever the case may be. It's not. It's really battling this spirit of apathy that we have that makes us sit out the process. You know, that rigging is most successful when people don't show up. That's actually how rigging happens, is that you don't have people show up so they can stamp ballots for, you know, if, say, they made an allotment for 100 people to show up and only 10 people come, then they can put 40 or 50 towards another person. But when everybody shows up, it's so much harder to sway elections and it's so much more blatant that you can see it and you know, investigate it or whatever the case may be. Um, and it's sad because the people who should know better are the people who do the worst. In terms of, I'll give you an example. Politics is a game of numbers, right? The presidency of Nigeria has never been won with more than 16 million votes. It's usually somewhere between 15 point something. There are 23 million students. The governorship of Lagos last time was one with, I think it was about 730,000 votes or thereabouts in a state that has 30 million people. Let's drill it down further. I ran for the House of Reps. Baby, I have 4.6 something million followers on Instagram. The seat was won with 23,000 votes. I have 4 point something million followers on Instagram. And yet in Etiosa, which is arguably the most enlightened uh, constituency in the nation, in terms of just education and, you know, people doing things, progress, you know, people being progressive. Etiosa is, generally speaking, is a, you know, it's a, it's a more advanced, at least relative to a lot of other places in the country. It's a more advanced federal constituency. And yet, we didn't have 23,000 votes to turn, you know, what would have been the upset of a lifetime around in our favor. And that then shows me the disconnect that young people have, because it's one thing to talk about the problems, it's another thing to do something about it. The, The very smallest thing that all of us can do is register to vote and show up on election day to vote. But not enough of us do that. And so it ends up being a situation where they convince you that they are going to rig anyway, so that you stay home, so that they can rig. And then the people who do show up, that's why politicians buy buy votes. They weaponize poverty, right? So they go to this group, this community that has 2,000 or 5,000 people, and they work with the community leaders, and they offer them this amount of money or this food or whatever, And they've made our politics transactional. They keep some people on payroll, they keep some people on the night before elections, money changes hands from different agencies to different people in the grassroots, and they sway these numbers so that they can keep the system the way that it is. And then those of us who, if all we needed to do was just, we don't even need everybody everywhere, we just need to pick the places that we can have. You know, when during the coalition of the votes, Everywhere that we had representation, we were coming first or second. But then there were places that we didn't have people on the ground. We didn't have enough hands or boots on the ground and all of that. And then you just saw the whole thing just go in a different direction. And so, again, it's a game of numbers, right? So what if we looked at the numbers and said, hey, come 2023, we want to target getting 10 senators of like minds and 40 reps of like minds. In the National Assembly, and that alone will signal a change in the affairs of the country because those people can then go in and put in the kind of policies that we need um, and so that's you know kind of where my mindset is now.
1: no, thank you and, and I am as well. I truly believe that I mean, in, the, in, a, in an environment like ours. The more people you have who are committed to the cause, who are passionate about it, the more it is to be able to get other young people to sort of rally them and get them excited about the process. So I have several questions for you already um, from the participants and I will start with the one that's very relevant to what you just um, discussed about your political career. Um it says, good afternoon Mr. Wellington, thank you for sharing your story. I think the youth are getting disappointed by the empty promises made by some politicians. Apart from talking to them, What other means do you think can change the mindset of this youth so that they can participate more in politics and also turn up for elections?
2: You know, I think, you know, first of all, we have to keep talking. Um, It's not not, uh, the sexiest suggestion, but we do have to keep trying to educate and just make our people aware, especially young people, of the power that they hold. So uh, NSA was a fantastic example of the power that young people have if we just all decide to get involved in something and speak up and push back. And for me, you know, those peaceful protests were just a sign of what could be, you know. But now the truth is we cannot protest about every problem that we have as a nation. I've tried it. it you know, the, the limit, the, the impact is limited. There are too many problems. They are too complex. So, we have to find a way to channel this energy from protests, channel it towards power. Uh, And that comes with education and awareness, uh, maybe even finding some way to incentivize people. You know, we're talking about doing some, maybe some kind of PVC concerts where, you know, we get the people that people want to see perform, but for you to have access, you need your voters card. So, we're we're trying all kinds of creative uh, uh, attempts. I think reinforcing that in the minds of our young people so that they understand the true power that they have.
1: And you know, you know and then, you know. The Thank you for that. No that's, no, that's a very good point. Thank you so much for that. The next question, we're going to shift gears a little bit to your, to your creative side. And this is the amazing thing about you. You have your politics, you have your faith, you have your creative side. So this question, this one caters to the creative side. <laughs> yeah, so basically, what she, the question she's asking, it's saying that, the societal norm in Nigeria right now is demand for low, not unethical and low-quality content. That How can you gain traction if that's not the type of work you produce?
2: Um, I disagree with the sentiment that the demand is for um, low-quality content. I think if you just look at the music side of things and the movie side of things, which is two spaces that I'm very familiar with, the highest grossing films, I don't think you can accuse Wedding Party or Sugar Rush or King of Boys of being low quality content, right? And even on the music side, if you see what like a Burner Boy, for instance, has done um, with Burner, Timms, uh, Oxley, there's a whole new generation Joe Boy um, of of music artists that are making waves around the world. now, are there people who are doing low quality content that are experiencing some level of success? Of course, but that's the same everywhere. You know, there'll always be, you know, you just have to decide where you want to fall and the kind of work that you want to do, you know, and I think there's a whole new era of filmmakers who just
1: don't fall into that space. I completely agree because, in terms of the quality of music, I mean, I've been in nigeria now for seven years and when i look at the quality of movies and um mm-hmm. and just content even commercials because i pay attention to that as well within that span of seven years it's it's improved significantly and because yep. i think there's a high you look at um, platforms like netflix that has increased distribution globally it's increased the demand for high quality and has forced everybody to step their game up so i, I completely agree with you i share the, say, um, the same sentiment with you Banky, on that question um, we have another question. Um, how do you get inspiration for your songs and other creative aspects of you? And how do you sustain your creativity? It's a really good question.
2: Okay. Um, <clears throat> I, so I get inspiration from life. So if you actually go back and listen to my uh, you know, portfolio of music or, or arsenal of music, I can actually probably tell you where who I was thinking about or the situation that I was in when I wrote a specific song. You know, I, I know what real life experience either I had or I saw or witnessed or whatever that I drew from um, to write your, or co-write those songs. Um, so for me, it's usually like a real life experience. It's either my real life experience or somebody else's experience that I witnessed or or saw or kind of drew inspiration from. So I get inspiration from life. I think life just keeps throwing things at you that if you really tap into it, you can draw inspiration from that. Um, But at a deeper level, I think God is the source of all creativity uh, and he's the source of all inspiration. And so I think maybe the, the, the more that I've grown and the further I've gone along, I've realized that and I've realized that that that's the ultimate source of creativity and inspiration. So, um, just keeping that in the center uh, has helped me. But I think you will find that most creative people, a lot of us, are inspired by life. Just life, just life gives you things. So, somebody told me, I can't remember where I read this. I read this that um, artists don't retire; they just stop when they have nothing else. To do. You'll live something, you'll see something, you'll go through something. It might be love, or heartbreak, or pain, or joy a celebration or sometimes a funeral you know some things will keep happening you always have something to write about
1: oh no that that's that's a very fair point um this question actually i know we've not touched on your family life but this is a good question to sort of touch on that it says how has your perspective about life changed since you became a father
2: oh man wow you just asked me about my favorite job description at the moment um Man, I gotta tell you, being a father is huh. Ah, it's everything that I prayed for and so much more. Um, our son is man, he's a, he's an amazing. I know every every parent probably feels that, right? Every parent feels
1: <laughs>
2: their child is the most amazing, but Zaya is actually the most amazing uh, yeah. <laughs> I think, you know. I was having a conversation with another friend of mine who is also a, a new father. So, um, Ibrahim Suleiman is an actor and, and, and artist and all of that. He's a friend of that, you know, that Ibrahim and Linda are friends of ours. And a few months before Zaya was born, their son was already born. So I was asking him, like, you know, what's fatherhood like? You know, I just said, tell me, tell me. You know, for guys, you know, it's like the woman feels it intensely every step of the way because it's happening inside of her so the guys, is you're just experiencing it through the lens of your wife until the child is born so I was really itching to know that so when I finally hold my son in my hands you know what's it going to be like and Ibrahim said something that uh, really struck a chord in me and he said you know my son I can't remember how, how old his son was at the time maybe just a two months or thereabouts. Still too young to really identify who is who, or you know, just feed me, burp me, clean me up and leave me alone. Like, I don't know who anybody is, I don't care. That's kind of the stage the son was in. And he was like, you know, at the age my son is now, he doesn't even know who is who, who is what, who is daddy, who is this. You know, he's freshly born, he's just living. So he really doesn't know who I am. But I feel so much love in my heart that I would do anything for this person who doesn't even have the slightest clue who I am. Like, I would do and I will work, I will kill myself if I needed to, to make sure that my son is okay and that that's what fatherhood has done to him. And I was thinking about it, and I promise you, I felt like I heard God say to me, Now you know how I feel about you. About you. Wow. I love you guys so much in advance that I killed myself, literally, to give you a chance to be okay. You know, and, and for me, I think that's what fatherhood has done. It's given me a deeper appreciation of what a father's love and, and God being the ultimate father, what that is like, um, what that
0: means. Wow,
1: that's very, that's very profound. Thank you for sharing that. Um, another question How do you deal with criticism, especially in the public space, given the fact that you are multifaceted? How do you deal with that?
2: I deal with criticism. So, you know, I, I, was, I think I was speaking in church when I said that uh, if the devil cannot defeat you, he will try to distract you. Uh, and that's what you find, especially in these days of social media, you know, you have people dragging i mean i don't think i've been dragged in my life like i've been dragged when i said i wanted to run for office back in the day when it was just entertainment if you found that you're trending on Twitter, you'll be like excited that means my song has hit or somebody likes my movie or whatever but in the last two years when you say you're trending on twitter there's a cold sweat that you break out saying you're you have like, <laughs> like panic like oh god what have i what have they said about me today? <laughs> i think You know, honestly, you just learn to have thick skin. You know, you learn the more you think, the more you, you know, God opens your eyes, you realize that pretty much everybody or anybody who has done something great has been criticized, and a lot of times unfairly. Um, So it's it's in scripture, right? David was going to be the king of Israel, but people were trying to kill him for most of his life and, and throwing stones, and I think once you... Come to terms with that that human beings just we are what we are we're fickle um we're suspicious we just we just are who we are we're human um and you just try to ignore it right so when if you read the scripture about david and goliath on the day that david was going to kill goliath he didn't even know that that was the day that was going to define his life but shortly before he goes to face goliath his own brother is trolling him saying you know, why are you here? Da, da, da. It and it says, it. David turned away. And so I've learned to just try and do that. I just turn away. So I don't go on Twitter as much anymore because I, I you know, they don't they drag me a few times. So I, I do my Twitter doses because I need to preserve <laughs> my mental health and just keep my mind for the things that I want to focus on, the things that I want to do. You know, Sometimes I put my phone on, do not do so everything, calls, so
1: social media, whatever, you can't reach me. That's a great advice. Thank you. That's a very, very great advice. Because, I mean, I love what you said about like, it. a distraction. So this is the last question we're done. What advice would you give to a younger Bank EW? The advice I would give to a younger Bank
2: EW is probably the, the things that have sustained me um, throughout my life is, one, believe in God um, and develop a relationship with Him. You need it. You're not going to go, you can't live without it. Um, two, believe in yourself and in the validity of your dreams. Um, dream big, start small, and never let small minds tell you that your dreams are too big. I know it sounds very aspire to, aspire to, but it's true. Um, and then three, I'll say just never, never give up on yourself and the things that you want to do. You know, yes, there'll be a healthy dose of fear. Yes, life will bring, bring you a healthy dose of storms, but you'll keep standing at the end of the day. So just never, never throw in the towel. Never throw in the towel. And last but not least, I would say find purpose. And when you do, chase after it with everything that you have. Because at the end of the day, it's fulfilling purpose that counts. It's, it's not pay, it's purpose. Yes, we want to make money, but... If it's money you are after, then take a look around and see how many billionaires have committed suicide. So yes, finding money is a good thing or or making money is a good thing, but money is, at the end of the day, it's an excellent tool, but it's a terrible master. So
1: change purpose and use money. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for making time. And and we're looking forward to your new video. It's a beautiful one. So please check it out. Definitely. We will. Thank you so much for being with us. Have a blessed day.
0: You can listen to all the episodes of our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please hit subscribe and leave a rating or review, as this helps new listeners to find us. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, facebook and linkedin to learn more about the BNJ foundation and our work on narrowing the skills gap for the future of work and gender mainstreaming thank you for listening to the bng leadership speaker series podcast